seven days after the amputation, I would describe my life changing again for the second time. And it was a nurse who walked in and basically wasn't having it. Um, she came in with breakfast and she said, well, you know, why don't, why don't you at least get up and shower? And I'm like, you know what? I just don't care. She put the tray down and got really close and just said, um, politely, but also really firmly, you know, Stephanie, that's enough. Like you have got to start doing something. I can't remember the rest of what she said, but I just remember in that moment, one being shocked, um, you know, because you know, I was sad and I was injured and how could she talk to me like this? Also, it was just the first person that had walked into that room and not felt sorry for me and was simply not going to accept moping. And she was the first person to really challenge me. And actually that felt really good. It set me on this course of remembering how much I love a challenge, how much I love working towards something. That was why I love sports. Hello, 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 and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast with me, Steve Ingham. Now, this podcast is all about exploring the dynamics of high performance with people who have been there and done it, people who have supported others to succeed or have explored performance concepts in real depth. And if you're feeling like supporting and championing us, then please do leave a review on iTunes. Now, I hope you found some benefit from the last three special episodes of the podcast focusing on supporting and championing you through the COVID-19 crisis. And if you haven't had chance to listen yet to Phil Skiba on exercising during the crisis, Louise Burke on keeping nutrition practical, or Andrea First on change and uncertainty, that's episodes 58, 59 and 60 respectively, then scroll back down on your podcast app and download the episodes. They're well worth a listen. And so to today's episode, and it's a special one. But you know what? I probably feel that about them all. I spoke to Steph Reed, three-time Paralympic medalist and world champion long jumper. Now, Steph is a remarkable lady, irrespective of the fact that at 15 years old, she lost her leg to the rotor blade of a motorboat. For amongst her sporting accomplishments, she's also been a semi-finalist on MasterChef UK, and she was the first Paralympian to model in vogue and is vice president of UK Athletics. And you may be wondering, with the Paralympic Games moved on a year, if she's still going to go for it? Well, in this discussion, we find out that it's a yes. We explore how she's motivating herself during the lockdown. And Steph talks me through that horrific accident when she was so young. Her response, what helped her, who helped her, which wasn't just her family, but some tough, loving health workers. And so we talk through that accident, but we also talk about how she made sense of her experience, emboldened her sense of self, and to hear it was truly moving and uplifting. Well, a very warm welcome, Steph. Welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Now, three-time Paralympic medalist, and world champion, semi-finalist on MasterChef, uh, model in vogue, vice president of UK Athletics, with a Paralympic Games delayed by a year. There's an awful lot that I could ask you about here, but I will start with, how are you in these unusual times? Uh, In 
do you know what? I'm actually I'm doing I'm doing well now. Um, I think the um, the first week definitely when when things kind of hit home and everything went on lockdown, um, and you know it was announced that the Paralympic Games were going to be uh, delayed. That was actually a really hard week, and um, it was weird because um, you know you go online and um, a lot of athletes were tweeting things like, "Oh well, you know, different date, same goal, not really a big deal." And I read those and I'm thinking. What are you talking like a year is a massive massive deal and there are so so many knock-on ramifications of this i mean it's an absolute game changer you know for some athletes it's a great thing because they've been injured uh, they just come back from pregnancy a year means a world of difference other athletes would have been in peak performance um you've now got these unusual situations where um suddenly athletes who would have been banned from competing at the games because of drug violations now can and uh, people who are serving sanctions for a year, well, who cares? Nothing's on. And so there are so, so many things that have been affected. This is is a really big deal. And uh, and for me personally, you know, someone who um, is probably looking, you know, more towards the end of her career, um, another year, um, it does it does make a difference, especially um, when you're looking at uh, perhaps having to start looking at other career options. So for me, yeah, it kind of took about a week of readjusting. And I gave myself a week to mope and sulk and feel sorry for myself. And and then it was done. And then I thought, well, um, you know, there probably will be a lot of fun, undiscovered things about about lockdown and new habits and new rhythms. And so let's get stuck in. And so actually, yeah, I feel kind of guilty on some levels for enjoying it um, or enjoying aspects of it. But overall, uh, really well. Wow, so that sounds quite quick. Is that is that you? Is that characteristic of you bouncing back, allowing yourself a week? You know, sort of. Did you just box it off that way, just going right, get it over and done with? Almost a bit like after you've the high after a, a big competition and you, everyone has the blues afterwards. Did you did you just compartmentalize it that like that? Um, do you know what? Actually, yeah, I think it is kind of a coping mechanism that I've just sort of learned along the way. Um, there is nothing that irritates me more than this idea of, you know, be positive all the time and like false positivity. I'm an incredibly optimistic person, but I also think that you have to live in reality. And um, so one of the things that I learned when, um, well, I mean, when I was six, uh, when I was 15, um, just my 16th birthday and I was in, I was in an accident and I became an amputee. And um one of the best things that I did naturally just to deal with that was I just, I felt everything and I never pretended if I was angry. I mean, fortunately I had an amazing family that would absorb it and would deal with it. and would just let me express myself. But because I did that and I got it out, I actually was able to deal with things and, and move on. I never felt like I had to pretend or, or put on this brave face when things were ugly, I was ugly. And that was just the way it was. And I think that just kind of carried on um, naturally. Um, I think it's really important to sit with ugly emotions and feel them um, because that's the only way that you're going to move on. But equally, you do have to be disciplined, and which is why, yeah, I sometimes set a time limit and think, right, you've got a week to mope around and then, then it's time to start doing something. Okay, so you allude to to the accident you had when you were 15. And uh, so if I can ask you about that in a moment, but just to finish that conversation, so you're going for the games next year, 2021. You're going. You're, you're still going for that. And and are you still able to train now? Uh, are you still able to train adequately? Um, I think 
in this period, I don't think anyone is going to improve. And so you kind of have to adjust your expectations. And if you can't improve, the next best thing is to maintain. And um, yes, there's some things that I I, I physically can't do. I don't have access to a track at the moment. I'm a long jumper. I don't have access to a pit. So that takes out quite a lot of things. But actually, um, the really cool thing is when you are forced into a situation where you have to be creative and change, um, you actually end up discovering things and discovering different ways of doing things that you never would have considered unless your hand was forced. And that that's kind of what I've been experiencing. And um, you, you know, have to just kind of decide, okay, what can I do well now? And I will focus on that. And fine, I'm not going to improve my long jump technical um, game at this point, but there's a lot of other things that I can do. And, and I'm kind of enjoying them and hoping that, you know, we'll see benefits in, in different ways. And and how does the being the airplane in the human airplane, how does that fit into your your training? I see on Twitter you're, you're challenged <laughs> to be a human airplane. Are you classifying that as some sort of core work or uh, stability work? What's that? <laughs> so to be fair, it's probably a lot more work uh, for my husband Brian than it was for me. Um, but yeah, I, I think, you know, part of this whole lockdown is we're learning different ways of, of connecting and doing things. And so I, I have a little um, a little niece uh, who's two and a half, Chloe. And um, when I was babysitting her, um, this would have been a few months ago and I was visiting in Canada, uh, we had this game called called Airplane. And um, so my husband's a wheelchair racer. Obviously, upper body strength is pretty important. And so uh, Chloe set down this challenge where, um, you know, her dad kind of lifts her as an airplane. And uh, she wanted Brent to lift me as an airplane as well. Um, we were slightly less successful than she was, but I feel like we put up a pretty good, a, a pretty good fight. <laughs> I love that. So that's that's great. And you know what? I, and I'm not sure that's a, a specific training prescription that I would uh, <laughs> I would naturally come to my mind. But the I think what is crucial at this time is to keep people engaged, and and part of that would be about variety if you can't necessarily hit the the normal training regimes that you you might typically plan and periodize and so on to to add to challenge the body in completely different ways and you know what i I reckon somebody's probably going to embrace that and come out the other side actually a little bit more robust a little bit more excited and and yeah they would they'd still stay engaged in their sport I was wondering how to ask you this, but you sort of alluded to your accident. Um, so can you tell us your story? What what happened? So I, um, I, I grew up pretty much always wanting to be um, an athlete. I had always just loved any sort of physical activity. And um, as I kind of went through school, um, you know, I did all the sports. Um, I did cross country. I did tennis, basketball, uh, volleyball, swimming. And... Um, when I was 12, I was introduced to rugby and I mean, I absolutely fell in love. It was unlike any sport I'd ever done. Um, you know, just imagine being a 12 year old girl and being given just absolute permission to let every single ounce of aggression out. I mean, it was amazing. And, um, but also as a sport, it, it just perfectly highlighted all of my abilities as an athlete I was both fast I was agile I mean I wasn't um uh, I wasn't I wasn't big but I was quick and and that was my advantage and and I was a scrum half and uh, I kind of decided in that moment that you know this is what I want to do I want to play professionally I want to represent my country and um yeah it was just an amazing feeling and 
um, actually, um, you know, things looked like they, they were going to fall into place. Um, I'd been at a game and, and the national coach was there and, uh, and they were really happy with what they saw and, and quite impressed. Um, it, it really did look like, okay, like this is, this is the start of everything that I want coming true. But a few months later uh, in the summer, I was up at a friend's cottage. Uh, we had a bank holiday weekend and their cottage was up uh, on a beautiful lake and they had uh, a boat and we would do this thing called tubing, which is where you attach an inner tube to the back of a speedboat and, you know, you just go flying across the water. And I mean, it's super fun. And uh, we were doing that all weekend. And then the morning before I was going to get picked back up to, to go home, we thought, well, we'll just do it one more time. And um, unfortunately, uh, this time I... Um, you know, you fall to two because you, you, hit, you hit waves and stuff like that. And so I was in the water and I was waiting to get pipped back up again, uh, like, like I always did. But um, when I, when I look back, I, I just, I knew something was wrong because the boat was coming way too fast. And um, I just thought, you know, he doesn't see me. And you know, it's it's kind of it's amazing how you know your brain works and you just flip into survival mode and everything was super clear. I knew exactly you need to miss the propellers. That's what you have to do. And so just you know, in a matter you know a split second, I was assessing my options. Um, I actually was a really good swimmer, but I knew I didn't have enough time. Um, you know, it was a big boat. There were probably about I don't know maybe twelve people on it, and um, I didn't have enough time to swim side to side because I would still get kind of sucked into the wake and, and pulled into the propellers. So I thought, that's fine. I will, I'm going to surface dive. I will get below the boat. I'll wait for it to go over top of me. And that's it. I'll be fine. So I went to do that, but I just totally forgot I had a life jacket on and I couldn't get under. And I mean, I just, the clips and the zips, there was just no time. And in that moment, you just think, you know, you just hope for the best. And um, it's weird. There's like a period of, I, I mean, I remember everything and it was just this period of just darkness. Um, I don't really remember what happened, what went on. And then just, I felt like my lungs were going to burst and, you know, you're desperately trying to orient yourself and get back up to the surface. And I surfaced again and, um, yeah, it was weird. I just, I didn't feel right, but I didn't know why. And, um, I couldn't really work out what was going on, but, I was very lucky um, to have survived that, but unfortunately, the propellers had caught me across my my lower back and, and my right leg, and um, it. I mean, it was it, it was it was quite serious. Um, you know, we were hours away from a half decent hospital, and you know, I was a lifeguard. I knew immediately that is way too much blood, and um, that was that was quite scary. But the worst part was coming out and seeing this really mangled limb and knowing that you would never run on that again. God. And so you're describing that. Uh, you, you almost have like a, a logic to it. Uh, you describe this sort of your feelings, your assessment of the situation, uh, what you're going to do to, to troubleshoot it. Um, was that was how your mind was at that moment, uh, just beforehand, that you were thinking clearly and logically about the the situation and how to solve it? 
Um, yeah, in some senses, I think you're probably giving me way too much credit right now. <laughs> I think the two things that I, I mean, the, the biggest thing I learned about that accident was actually how amazing your body is, um, when, and how amazing your mind is and how it will just naturally compartmentalize things for you that you're not capable of dealing with. When I, when I go and, um, I love getting the chance to go into schools and speaking to kids, um, you know, particularly around the ages of, you know, eight, nine, 10, the questions they ask are great because they're so insightful and they will ask anything. Everyone else is too polite. Um, but invariably the one thing the kids are concerned about the most is were you in pain? Were you in pain in the accident? Are you in pain now when, when you walk? It's the number one question by far, which is really sweet. And and, and I think about it, and I, I was never actually in pain at any point. It was almost just like it was too much for my brain to handle that it just shut, um, you know, everything off and everything down. Your body goes into, into shock. I mean, the pain that I feel when I stub my toe is infinitely worse than anything I felt that day, which is crazy to, to think about. And again, it was, I don't think it was anything to do with my ability to cope. It's, it's just what your brain does when you get put into survival mode. And so you're talking there about not being able to almost receive the, the feedback of pain, but then you reference the image of seeing your mangled limb. And so you felt the, the shock and the pain of that too. I did. I mean, it, it, it was a very, very strange, um, yeah, it, it was just a strange day all in all. And actually, the funny thing is, um, you know, just the, the aspects of yourself that come out. Um, I mean, I remember, um, <laughs> this is actually really embarrassing. Um, so what they did was, obviously, we weren't near a hospital. So they, you know, there was an ambulance. They took me to, you know, this tiny little clinic that really couldn't do anything for me. I mean, I needed a blood transfusion. Um, that's what I That's what I needed immediately. And I can remember yelling at this junior doctor um, I had a huge huge gaping wound kind of across um, my upper back and, and just both um, both glutes and that was a big problem as well and there was nothing they can do and this guy started duct taping it and I remember just tearing him apart and being like you've got to be kidding me like you went to medical school and this is the fucking best that you can do sorry <laughs> and this is the best that you can do let it all but- out <laughs> And so it, it was just this really, really strange mix of emotions. You kind of float into and out of it. Um, but and, and and again, after after the accident, after the pain, you know, it's those two weeks afterwards where, where things kind of start coming back. But if nothing else, I did learn that actually I can trust my body and it has an incredible ability to cope when when I when I can't. And so you OK. You've mentioned there that you emotionally let it all out and that you had uh, an amazing support network of people that that were there for you at that time. Uh, how did you process the, uh, I guess, the prospect and uh, of losing a foot, a limb, and um, and then starting to think about moving forward? How were you? How were you mentally in that period of time where there's a decision made? But you're alive. You're you've survived. You've got people around you. Um, I think actually the key was what you just said. It's, it's actually the people around you. It's not something that you can do on your own because you're just not capable. You're almost stuck in this hole, and you can't see anything around you. And you you need the eyes of of other people. Um, when I 
I mean, I, I kind of knew all along they're not going to be able to do anything for that leg. But it was um, the moment uh, when um, my mom came into the recovery room, actually. So I, I was unconscious and, um, you know, I wasn't I wasn't the one making any of the decisions. And I woke up in this recovery room and, you know, yeah, like I, I was so thankful to still be alive because I knew how close it had been. And, um, but when my mum came in to say, you know, they, they did everything that they could, but they couldn't save um, your right foot and they had to amputate. I mean, that was devastating because I knew in that moment, life is never going to look the same. There is no going back. Um, you know, at, at 15, like that was my life stream. That was now no longer a possibility. What do you do? You know, I love sport. I couldn't even imagine a life without it. Um, I didn't know if I wanted a life without it. And so that, that was tough. And that first week I was not happy. Um, you know, you can kind of, you can sense when someone has, you know, they're kind of slipping into that area of, I don't even want to try anymore. Like I just don't care. And and that's kind of where I was. I mean, also I was on a lot of medication. <laughs> so it's tough to, to process things then as well. But um I just I didn't um I wouldn't eat. I didn't want to see anyone or refuse visitors. You know, I was just not a nice person to to be around. And then and I'll never forget seven seven days later, um Seven days after the amputation, um, I would describe my life changing again for the second time. And it was a nurse who walked in and basically wasn't having it. Um, she came in with breakfast and I just did my usual, like, I, you know, I don't want to eat, you know. And she said, well, you know, why don't, why don't you at least get up and shower? And I'm like, you know what, I just don't care and so I kind of pretended to, to sleep hoping she would get the hint and just go and just leave me alone but instead um she you know just put the tray down on on um on my bedside table and got really close and just said um you know politely but also really firmly you know Stephanie that's enough like you have got to start doing something and um, I can't remember the rest of what she said, but I just remember in that moment, one, being shocked, um, you know, because, you know, I was sad and I was injured. And how could she talk to me like this? But also it was just she was the first person that had walked into that room and not felt sorry for me and was simply not going to accept moping. And she was the first person to really challenge me. And actually that felt really good. And it just kind of sets on this, um, it set me on this course of remembering how much I love a challenge, how much I love working towards something. That was why I love sport. And it was in that moment that I realized, you know, I was still the same person. I could have lost every limb on my body and I still would have been the same staff. I still would have been the staff that wanted to, you know, train really hard and, and loved competing and loved giving her best. Um, and I just realized I was still that person. Um, I was probably going to have to find a different outlet for it now, um, but that was okay. But she just kind of reignited in me that desire. Actually, I want to keep fighting. Um, this isn't what I chose and this still really sucks, but I'm going to make the best of it. Wow. 
So you took seven days to get over the the Paralympics being <laughs> uh, being delayed. Uh, you took seven days for somebody to kick you up the backside. I mean, that's, that sounds like a like a, a voice that you just needed at the right moment, but probably somebody who has been there and done it and seen every possibility in medical care and and probably saw the potential in you that that's what you needed that you to, to snap out of it and and how did you re- then respond what was the what were the first what were the first moments where you started to think i'm going to get my teeth stuck into this uh well i um ate everything on that plate for breakfast that morning um <laughs> you know she came back and i wanted to make sure she saw that I had a shower, which, you know, it's all contextual. That was a big deal in that moment. And, um, you know, you kind of have to start with with baby steps. And, and again, it was just this idea of working out, okay, like I can see, I have a clearer vision of where I want to be, you know, three years from now, but what will that look like today? And I mean, it was just, it was infinitely small things, um, things that probably wouldn't mean anything to, to anyone else. Um, like just sitting up for five minutes. Um, one of the things that amputation does is it just really affects how your blood travels back to your heart. And, you know, sitting up is just, you know, it, it's actually painful. It, it gives you a lot of um, uh, just different pressure sensations throughout your head that aren't, aren't great. And so, you know, just really small things. And, and I, think, I think the game changer was actually just being able to experience and realize those moments of joy. And things that in another scenario, you wouldn't even flag as being a situation that could be remotely joyful. But um, I mean, even like, I'm only giving this for context, people understand just what that can look like. Um, One of the big concerns and one of the things that would have been a really big issue was how the propeller um, nicked my colon and caused damage. And and nobody was really sure. And um, so actually, (laughs) at the moment, I did my first poo was a really big deal. <laughs> and, yes. and, you know, we celebrated. And of course, that sounds ridiculous. But I just think in every scenario that you have, as soon as things change, you can't keep applying the same standards that you use in a different situation. And so you have to be agile enough in terms of how you're setting your goals, how you're how you're evaluating them um, to actually match the new situation you find yourself in. And actually, to be honest, that's probably true for everybody who's in lockdown right now. Um, you know, the whole world's going through this pandemic. If you keep judging yourself by the standards you had, you know, six weeks ago, um, it's just not going to work and it's not great um, for your mental health. Okay. So besides the fact that it was about having a poo, um, <laughs> is to to think, step out of that scenario, what you're focusing there, or it seemed as though it helped you appreciate what you had, but even though we're quite hardwired to, and sensitive to the things that we've lost, and it's interesting now you're referencing the, this idea of, of, of loss, um, you know, people talking about uh, stockpiling at supermarkets and how ridiculous that is. And but but actually having read about some of the clinical psychology, what's going on there is that when people are faced with loss, that they search for things that they can focus on that is a gain so it sounds like in a similar situation that you're celebrating those moments that, that you're you're taking the, the the joy in them definitely and actually it was a joy that was key because it's the joy that um that almost stops that fear 
Um, and so a lot of, you know, the more negative habits that we form in order to find security, they're because of fear. Whereas actually when I reached that moment, when I knew, okay, I have no idea what the next four months, the next year is going to look like. I had never even met an amputee. I knew nothing about the world of disability. Um, and even though there were still so many unknowns, I still had, um, I had found this deep sense of security. I will be able to deal with it. No matter what comes, I will be able to deal with it. And for me, that was definitely the game changer. And and how was that in terms of going back out into uh, school or society and so on um, and recreating your new identity because you'd grown as a as a rugby player and as a friend to to your schoolmates and so on and and how was that reintroduction that was one of the hardest things that i've ever had to do and you're right i think it was the loss of identity and having to figure out i don't know who i am outside of sport and it's i mean i so the accident happened um, at the beginning of August, and originally um, I was going to take the semester off school, but I just thought I just I'm so I'm so bored. I just want to go back. So I ended up going back quite early in um, midway through September, and just I was genuinely fearful. I was going to show up at school, and my friends weren't going to like me anymore. My teachers weren't going to like me anymore. My coaches weren't going to be interested because I had nothing to offer. You know, I couldn't win games. Um, I wasn't a good athlete anymore. You know, I was just this person going around on crutches. Um, you can't get an artificial leg um, for several months after until the skin heals. And so it was actually just walking in and being prepared. You know what? It's possible no one's going to like you anymore. And it sounds like a ridiculous thing to be afraid of. And and there is no, there's no way to make it easier. You just have to walk through it. And I remember um, meeting with my my prosthetist for the first time, even though he couldn't make a leg. I remember going in and just pleading with him. I know you can't make me a leg, but can you just make me just fashion some sort of foot that I can just kind of attach to the end of my stump? That way, when I go out, you know, to the mall when I'm out in public, people just won't keep staring at me. And he was brilliant. He looked me in the eye and said, Stephanie, I could do that but I'm not going to, you know, you need to accept this is who you are now. And I think it's better that you learn to deal with it, which sounds incredibly harsh. <laughs> and, you know, it was, and I think it's so simple for you. Why can't you just do it? But, um, you know, he knew he's, he's been there before he's seen this. He knew that it's important that you are proud of who you are as you. And, um, even just some of the things that my mom, you know, we would go to the mall. The mall was great because um, it was a super flat surface. I could get around on my crutches reasonably easy. And my mom said to come one day. I'm like, oh, mom, I don't want to. Like, I'm just so sick of everyone staring at me. And she was like, well, yeah, your hair looks awesome. Why wouldn't they be staring? But again, it was just this idea of like, you know, get over yourself as though you assume everything and everyone cares about you and your amputated foot. Probably no one cares. They're looking at your hair. And, and it was great, again, just to have like those just adjustments made in terms of perspective. And again, that goes back to, it's not something you can do on your own. Like we are all so navel gazing. It's so, so important that we have people around us that will just give us um, insight into our blind spots. Otherwise we'll be stuck in them for the rest of our lives. You've got, this is in Canada at the time. Uh, yes. So actually, people are probably wondering, that's a very strange accent. Uh, so, um, yeah, the accident happened in Toronto, Canada. I'm just 
thinking about the hardcore medical staff there that like resilience training staff they know like the nurse just get up and get a shower and prosthetist so no tough it out <laughs> there's some there's some tough loving going on to get there and that's the that's the uh, a brilliant reframe of focusing on your hair versus your leg <laughs> My mum is incredibly wise. I mean, she has had moments, um, yeah, like that, where she just comes out with absolute gems. So do you think this was in you, this reserve and this resolve and resilience and any any other uh, word I can think of? Did you think this was there? It just needed triggering from other people. And have you seen other people respond in a similar way to similar experiences? Or has this harnessed what was already there within you? Um, I think so since since becoming an amputee and having way more involvement in the world of disability than I, I would have previously, I've noticed events like this, um, there's no middle ground. You either come out, um, you know, just with a new zest and appreciation for life or you go the other way and there is bitterness and there is despair and there doesn't seem to be a middle ground. And these events tend to be really decisive and divisive. Um, and I mean, if you had asked me as a 14 year old, if I could have dealt with this, no. Um, but I just think that there is, again, I think every single human, um, I don't think there's anything that special about me when you are put into a scenario where you have to show up. I think by and large we do, as long as we give into it and just kind of open ourselves up to it and, and plod through and just say, okay, I, <laughs> I don't know how this is going to turn out, but every day I'll take the next step and I'll ask myself, what is the next best thing that I can do? Um, yeah, I think every single human is capable of, of doing this. And we see this, you know, all the time, you know, variety of difficult situations. I'm actually reading a book right now about um, Auschwitz and just the way people stepped up in that scenario. So no, I don't think it's special or confined to one individual. I think we're all capable. Oh, can you tell us the book? Um, it was The Librarian of Auschwitz. Oh my goodness. Um, you have that, you use the word there, zest, and that, that seems uh, an effervescence from you about um, about your experiences, but also how you rationalise it. And this doesn't necessarily follow the timeline of your experiences, but when did you start to make sense of your experience? Um, I guess once you're in it and it's quite visceral and you're feeling those ups and downs, it, it would be difficult to step out of that experience. But when did you first start to contextualise it and, and appreciate it for what it, what it is? Um, it was, okay. I, I feel like I've probably made it seem like I got over everything in seven days on the basis of that nurse, which is not true. That was a start. Seven um, years maybe. <laughs> yeah. That's probably more realistic. I mean, the actual process. Yeah. I, I would probably say between four and seven years, um, you know, as, as probably confident and happy as I was outwardly, um, you know, there was still a lot of things that I kind of needed to sort out in myself. And so, I think initially, for example, um, I thought the best way for me to succeed as an amputee was to basically fool everyone into thinking that I wasn't one. You know, I walk incredibly well. Uh, If I was wearing trousers, you probably wouldn't even know that I was an amputee. I mean, I had friends in university who I'd known for, you know, a couple of years who had no idea that, um, that I had an artificial leg. 
because it was something that, you know, I was still processing. Um, you know, I was 16 years old when, or I was 15 years old, just about to turn 16. And, you know, already, um, you know, you've got a teenage daughter. Um, it's, you know, it's a really t- difficult period where, um, you know, you're, you're transitioning and trying to, you know, body image is a really big thing. And, you know, suddenly you realize, wow, I'm never going to look like anyone in, in these magazines. Um, how do I feel about that? How do I feel about living in a society where people are not going to value me in the same way they're going to value people who have forelimbs? Uh, wow, what's dating going to look like? Um, is it something that I even want to get into or is that just going to be too awkward and too and too hard? And so, yes, you have all these things that you are worried about and afraid of, but equally, you actually end up finding all these other great things. Like, for example, okay, society is not going to accept me. And suddenly, then you're free. You know, you can just check out of all these ridiculous rules and just not care. And you get this amazing sense of freedom that you never would have experienced when you're trying really hard to show, you know, wherever you're on social media, you have it all together. And so with everything, you know, with every negative, there was a really great positive. And that's probably just the way most life is. And um, so I was experiencing all these these other great benefits. And But there was a moment when, um, and, and I think it was a moment where I actually finally realized, do you know what, I, yeah, I am different, but that doesn't make it a bad thing. Um, when I first became a para-athlete, um, I ended up going back to school and studying biochemistry and then just ended up kind of finding my way back into athletics. And it was before London 2012. And I had no expectation of being any sort of athlete that had any sort of sponsorship. And I remember, you know, um, being invited to to go and, and speak with a rep from a company who was looking for other people. And, you know, you're there and you're looking around and you're looking at other athletes that you know and that, um, you know, were able-bodied and, and great. And you start feeling really small and start feeling really silly and insignificant. But then there was this moment where I thought, no, I'm not going to accept that. Um, actually, you know, for someone at the same level of me with the same experience, I am automatically more interesting for having an artificial leg. And that was the first moment where I realized, you know, actually differences can be, you know, superpowers. That is what is engaging. And I will never again look at this as something that's negative because if I feel negatively about it, everyone else is going to as well. I dictate how other people feel. Oh God, there's so much in that that I could ask you about. Um, The freedom and the exploration or uh, understanding your situation and that superpower which makes me think of the channel four advert that was so significant at the time, but I'm going to, but how, how amazing was it to be thinking, I'm never going to be like those people uh, I see in a magazine and then become one of those people in a magazine. (laughs) I mean, something like Vogue. I mean, as, as much as some people might be listening, thinking, Oh, well, that's, that's not what you do for a living, but, but you're being celebrated for who you are. How, did that feel like a moment where you were coming full circle? It, it totally did. Uh, I wow. mean, yeah, seeing that in the magazine for the first time. And um, yeah, it really, it, it really was. It was something I never expected to happen. And actually it happened not by me trying to be someone that I wasn't. It happened by me just being me. Wow. And so... And that moment of feeling, no, this is, I'm, I'm infinitely more interesting. I'm not sure you said infinitely, but you probably <laughs> are. Um, but, but that moment of thinking, this is, this is a unique feature and it's a super strength of mine. Uh, was that propelled by this wave of interest around 
2012, where, and we had Nick Diaper on the podcast a few months ago now, but, but just feeling that, that step change of, of the, the Paralympics didn't have that international prestige and interest and audiences. Um, you had full, you had a big stadia, but not full. And then suddenly at 2012, it was, uh, how did that feel at that moment? I mean, that was such um, a dream come true to to witness and to be a part of that one, not only a home games, but also now that was the Paralympics that changed everything. Um, and, and, and yeah, it, it, it's so much easier to um, take on feelings of belief and feeling good about yourself when the public do it as well. Now, that can never be your crutch. You can never be dictated to by what society thinks of you, but it certainly helps. And, you know, that was a game changer for a number of young disabled children who now would have grown up seeing, um, you know, sporting heroes with disabilities on on TV. Um, And that was a big deal. And I remember just really having that hit home for me when, um, you know, previously when I was when I was training and I would go to the gym, um, people were always really supportive. But it would be more of like, oh, that's so sweet. You know, look at her working out. Good for you. Whereas after London 2012, I would go to the gym and, you know, men would be asking me for tips on how to squat, you know, a female with an amputation, um, which um, was just just crazy. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, the, the, let, let, let's not let's not paint too rosy a picture. There's still work to be done. Um, you know, there are um, still huge amounts of difficulties for people that are different, have different disabilities, different ways of doing things. But it definitely got that conversation rolling and definitely a society helped us value uh, different ways of thinking uh, and different ways of being. And I don't know the the, the most uh, appropriate way to ask you this question. So feel free to bounce this back and ask me to have another go. Um, but But in terms of that interest, um, how much of that is that you're you're understanding and recognizing that my story is defined by the adversity and the experience that I've had and the the horror of the situation um, versus how much my your your own opinions and thoughts and ideas and identity is wrapped up in what you have to say and how you've you, you how you've experienced athletic work and how you've thrived under this pressure. Um, I'm not sure the, the the what the question is specifically, but it's it's about it's about you know you, you put a hero up as a public speaker and they they'll say oh, I you know I tried and I tried and then I succeeded and and here's the gold medal at the end of it. Yours has a different dimension of that. How much is that something you cherish, or is that how much is that something that you'd actually want to push to one side and and tell the human story? I think that's a great question. And I, I think I do understand where you're going. Um, so, for example, um, I sometimes work as a broadcaster for, for Channel 4. And we're constantly having this debate between, OK, so when we are doing power sport, how much do we focus on the story and where they've come from? And how much do we focus on the sport? And are we devaluing their performance as athletes um, by focusing too much on the story? And my position has always been, um, you know, we are human and we are multidimensional. The story matters and it it is part of it and it's part of what people will relate to. And and equally, um, this is me putting on a very practical and realistic head. Um, How can we 
why would somebody want to watch somebody in the Paralympics run the 100 meters in 11 seconds when they can watch it in the Olympics and run it in, you know, nine, six? What is the difference? And for me, that story makes a big deal. It does not mean that we devalue what they're doing as, as athletes, but it is the, the whole package wrapped together. Now, where I draw the line, um, you know, I it's going to sound weird to say, but do you know what? I love my artificial leg. Um, it's, it's amazing. It fits really well. Um, I was, I'm unbelievably lucky in that I have what is called a fantastic stump in that it gives me very little issues. And it's very rare for someone who had a traumatic amputation because you can't plan it. So when it comes to my artificial leg, I love it. I love showing it off. Um, I purposely now get carbon fiber sockets. Um, I used to always think, oh, I want one that looks really lifelike. I'm like, that's stupid. Carbon fiber is cooler. Um, but equally, my artificial leg is not the most interesting thing about me. And when that line starts getting crossed, that's when I have an issue. Oh, and that's obvious from the first moment I spoke to you in that sense of the, the, the um, articulation of your experience is richer. Th- and I'm asking you more about that than the details of the, of walking, etc. Um, oh, that's, that's fascinating. So you've, you've gone through that thought process of um, asking questions that people are, are interested in one side of the story, but ultimately it's integrated. That's what I'm hearing from you. Yes, 100%. And I think even, um, you know, I've, I've watched um, able-bodied sport and I've watched para-sport. And, um, you know, some people, um, for, for, for us, well, I actually, hang on, I should not, I'm not speaking on behalf of all para-athletes. I'm going to speak on behalf of me. Um, you know, so occasionally I will compete able-bodied. And um, it's simply um, a case of there's more, there's just more competitions there. But I don't see, um, you know, as, I don't see para-sport as the ugly stepsister to Olympic sport. Um, I see them both on par. They're different but they both kind of sit on the same level. And the difference for me is when you go to a sporting event like the Olympics, it's amazing. It's an amazing showcase, but often it is people in the audience watching these really amazing people have these moments. Whereas in parasport, it's this incredible, um, I, I don't feel like the audience is, is watching, you know, they are involved and they're actually, they're actively realizing that even if they feel like they're underdogs, they can still do amazing things as well. And so it is just a totally different feel. They are the same and they are different. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's interesting. I mean, I, I think about long jump and I think about Mike Powell and Carl Lewis struggling against each other in 1991. And I think about the, the human rivalry and the, the fact that it was at the, at the level of the world record and setting a new world record is, is sort of irrespective because if I wanted to watch things leaping further, then I'll watch kangaroos or, <laughs> or it's about the, the people and the, and relating to that and how they respond to that situation. Yeah. Interesting. And you said, you mentioned they're not speaking on behalf of the Paralympic community that alludes to, there's a variety of different views there that you don't necessarily adopt or can you, could you allude to what those other views might be that people are more entrenched of saying, actually, you know, I, uh, I'm, it's just about para sport for me. I'm going to just focus on that. Uh, yes, I think that the reason why I have a um, huge hesitation about ever pretending to be a mouthpiece for all people with disabilities is because um, there is just such 
a huge and vast range of experience. So I remember, you know, 10 years ago, I would, you know, go up and down the country telling kids, you know, you can do anything you want with a disability. And I realized on, you know, a trip to Nepal, um, I have not been telling the whole story. Um, life is very different when you have a disability, depending on how much money you have. Um, and, and yes, I'm in a very lucky place where I have access to all sorts of limbs, and that is not the case for everyone. So that was something that I had to really quickly um, look into and adjust because there is not the same treatment for people with disabilities across the UK or across the world. Um, and I guess the second thing is, is again, there's huge differences whether or not your disability is visible or invisible, or whether it's considered, you know, cool um, versus less cool, which sounds weird to say, but I mean, that's reality. Um, I, for example, have a disability that can be very visible, that can be very visible or very invisible, depending on whether or not I'm wearing trousers or, or the scenario. Um, I'm married to another Paralympian, Brent Lakatos, and, and he's a wheelchair racer, and he uses a wheelchair in, in his daily life. And, you know, the things that I've occasionally witnessed, um, the way people respond to him, you're just kind of like, wow, that's that's really weird. Uh, and again, there are other disabilities where, you know, I just don't have the experience of knowing what that's like. So that's why I'm hesitant. That's why there is such a range of views and they're all valid views. Um, I can't say them because they're not mine, but equally um, that is their experience and that is their reality. And so it matters that we have a variety of um, opinions and voices speaking into the situation. Mm. Now, I've impatiently jumped ahead because I'm curious and interested and 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 it felt right to ask you those questions at that, at that moment. But um, can I just take you back to that sort of moment you first ran with an artificial limb and how, how that felt again, because you, you mentioned zest and it sounded like that zest and inspiration and aspiration to be a rugby player and athletic. How did that feel? How did that happen first? And then how did that feel? Um, God, actually, you know, if I'm really honest, it was crushing, crushingly disappointing. <laughs> so, oh, so much no. for best in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, but, um, I imagine this breeze in your hair and you're just thinking I found it again and, and I'm back there. Go on, tell me. You know, I did. I did too. Um, why don't I start? Well, actually, I'll, I'll start with the, the moment that I walked again for the first time. And um, I remember because um, I had to, it was the first day I was having my walking leg. I was going to go pick it up. And, um, and I put it on and, um, you know, we did a little bit of walking and it, it's not like you, you put it on and you walk off. Um, I still had crutches because you're just teaching your skin and your bones to tolerate the pressure again. And, and so, and it was really cool though. And I looked down and suddenly there were, there were two feet and um, my mom then had to drop me back off at school. And it just so happened uh, the time to drop me off. There was a huge school assembly going on. And so um, I went to join them and I was just so desperately trying hard to sneak into um, into the back of the auditorium and, and no one noticed. But the moment I opened the door, everybody just, you know, turned around and just literally stood up and started. I mean, it's actually making me tear up now and just. Um, they just stood up and all started, you know, clapping and just so happy for me. And that was, I mean, that was that moment of just, wow, um, that was really awesome. But back to um, the rugby moment. Um, yeah, I was kind of expecting that again. 
And um, it was almost a year after the accident where I stepped back onto rugby field. And of course, I had these visions of I was going to be unbelievably fast. I was going to be top scorer. I was going to be amazing. And uh, it just wasn't like that. Um, running was very different to walking. Um, you know, it was painful, to be honest. Um, a lot of force goes through your body when you are trying to sprint on it. And again, the feet are amazing because you have this special kind of skin on the bottom. You have this amazing bone structure that is able to dissipate that force. Whereas I was essentially running on the bottom of my tibia and fibula on heel skin, which is super thin. And it was just flat out painful. I could last for about two minutes. And, um, and even then, you know, I used to be able to run end to end on the field, you know, darting in and out of players. And I was just getting slammed to the ground um, because in my head, I could still do it. But my body, it, it just wouldn't. And um, that first game ended up with me, you know, getting pulled off by my coach because she could just see I was in too much pain and basically just storming down the field and crying behind a tree. So, yeah, two big, big differences. <laughs> I'm just thinking one in one moment, how cool of your cohort in that moment as you walked into that assembly room and clapping you and and welcoming you back in that moment. Um, kudos to them in, 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 in that time to, to respond in that way. And then I'm also just thinking slamming an amputee to the ground at their first rugby match back. It's another bit of tough love. What's going on? <laughs> Yeah, nobody felt sorry for me. <laughs> and 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 then so, um, how was your then your journey back to or uh, discovering that you could uh, have a road towards uh, being a sprinter again? And how did that that start? And how did you start to respond? Um, to be honest, actually, that experience um, on the rugby pitch was actually kind of confirmation that, okay, sport might not be the avenue for you. Um, and that happens sometimes in life. Um, you know, you, you, have to, you have to adjust. I knew that I was probably going to make a terrible waitress. Um, and so I needed to study. And um, it was actually in that moment that I decided... Um, okay, well, you know, all this energy and all this effort I used to spend on sports, um, I was always pretty academic. I'm just going to apply it to school. And I chose a new goal. Um, I wanted, my surgeon was amazing. Um, he, um, they flew, they brought him in um, from holiday to, to work on me just because I was young and, you know, had a great chance to hopefully survive. And I thought if I can do that for someone else, that would be, you know, a life well spent. So that was my new goal. So um, I studied really hard and ended up um, getting a full academic scholarship to study biochemistry at, at Queen's University in Canada. And uh, I wrote my MCATs, which in North America, you have to write an entrance exam in order to uh, be considered for medical school. And, and that was my new plan. That's what I was going to do. And um, it was kind of within that time frame. So also, um, you know, that experience of huge amounts of pain when I was running. Um, Initially, you know, for, for the first two years, I really could only run maybe once a week for about, you know, 30 minutes pain-free. Um, but the reality and, you know, I just, it was a case that I just loved it so much. I was willing to put up with that. 
And, you know, gradually over time, my body adapted um, to the point where about four years later, actually, I could comfortably run, um, you know, do two training sessions a day. And so these two moments of just about to start this journey onto medical school um, while at university and also being, you know, finally given um, a proper sprint blade, um, that kind of happened at the same time. And, and I've been running and doing my thing, just loving it. And thinking, well, my times are okay, but you know they're not—they're not amazing. And then realizing, oh, actually, I've just been running on the wrong blade. And actually, um, I am quite good. And actually, I am now in a position where I can get fit again and and really commit to this. So it was just kind of a strange, messy path that um, I walked away from sports, and then um, obviously couldn't stay away, and kind of just got thrown back into it. And then I had a decision to make: um, okay, well, are you going to pursue medicine, or are you going to? try this ridiculous dream of being a sprinter with only one foot. And you have to bear in mind that as I'm telling my family this, this is way before people even knew what parasport was. And, you know, people thought, you know, you're nuts. Like there's no future in this, but um, it was a weird one. So equally I knew, like I knew medical school would be hard, um, but I I knew I could do it. Uh, I knew I'd be capable. I knew I'd finish. I have no idea if I could cut it as a para-athlete. And I just thought, well, look, I've just, I've got to try. Um, If it doesn't work out, it doesn't work out. And then I go to medical school, I go to medical school two years older. There's no big deal. So I just thought, well, I'm I'm in. And um, I am definitely that person that is, I don't have middle ground. I'm in or I'm out. And, And I was in and I pursued it. And I went to the Beijing Paralympics and I thought, yeah, I definitely want to be there in 2012. And that, that was the start. Wow. And so you're, you're speculating hugely there, but it sounds to me as if the challenge aspect of it was almost the bit that made you excited that uh, without disrespecting any of the medical community, we certainly don't need to do that at the moment. But you're almost thinking, well, I could do that. I can see that I would achieve that, but I don't know whether I could respond to this. And um, was that part of the motivation? Oh, it totally is. So if I, I I have this feeling, I I have this sense of myself where if something scares me, it also intrigues me. And if I feel myself wanting to say no out of fear, that automatically then makes me want to say yes, just to see. And I mean, it will crop up for the most ridiculous of scenarios. Um, So in uh, in 2017, um, I had an opportunity to star in a short film and um you know part of me was just like oh like I can't I can't act I don't I don't know how to do this and the director uh, the the way it worked out though the funding was tied to me starring in it um and the director said no it's fine um we will go through acting lessons and we're going to do this and I was terrified but equally it was a terror that thought yeah but I kind of want to know if I can do this and so yeah you're 100% right I think um fear kind of intrigues me Okay, so that that's leading to me to ask, and I should be asking you about sport and and jumping and stuff, but I'm not going to as much. But <laughs> the, um, so you have you seem to have a number of different um, aspects to your 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 career, and you know you've been on Master Chef, you've modelled, uh, you're you you act in a governance role at UK Athletics. Um, I'm imagining what next might scare you. And I've now I've discovered that you, you act. Um, 
So how how important is culturing the the non-sporting interests to you uh, at the expense or potentially the balance of of you pursuing another medal uh, achievement at the Tokyo Games? How do you how do you balance that and and follow your your instincts, but also stick to what you're doing well? That that's a great question. Um, so I think I believe you know my coach Aston Moore. I love Aston Moore. And he's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Who doesn't? So Aston, yeah, Aston is an amazing coach. And um, you, you are right. At this moment in my life, I am 100% committed to my athletics. And I don't think Aston is the kind of coach that would accept anything else. We are committed to excellence. We are committed to making me the absolute best long jumper that I can, that I can be. That being said, Aston has a phrase which he uses called positive distractions. And so he actually, from a performance perspective, is a strong believer in um, developing people both on and off the track. Because, look, when you are under pressure, you automatically revert back to who you naturally are. And who you are shows up in every aspect of your life, not just on the track. And um, so it's about practicing and engaging things, you know, through all aspects of your life. And uh, part of the reason Aston is an amazing coach, I mean, like, it's a given that, you know, he's great technically, he's great at, you know, periodizing performance, any coach can do that. The difference is someone who can build a fantastic human being. Positive distractions. So basically, Aston knows he has permission at any point in my life to say, like, Stephanie, I think you're neglecting um some aspects of the track it's interfering the moment Aston says that then I pull back <laughs> but it's great you know we have a kind of relationship um where that that is possible you know a time will come you know when I retire from athletics and I move on to other things and and yes it is a balance um it probably does sound at the moment like I'm balancing tons of different plates at one time but actually by and large my philosophy in life is you know do fewer things better and so it's it's just, you know, I, I don't do all these things at the same time. Um, there are just certain high intensity periods in different in different areas. But um, yeah, I should actually clarify, I'm a big believer in if you want to be great at something, you've got to give it 100% attention. So I, I like that in that sense of giving you the other, the non-sporting aspects of your life are springing their steps. So you've got excitement that, that draws you out of bed in the morning rather than dreading necessarily the same training but the training is one part and and the recovery is another and and your nutrition which you're clearly expert at um but but also i've got these other avenues that are part of me and there's some lovely research by david lavalley that looked at uh at that career development of of finding outlets in life can actually enhance on-field performance. I think it was in rugby league players, for example. And I think sometimes when I've supported athletes that are just super obsessive about one thing, about that I've got to perform this training set, and if I don't, then that will mean I won't qualify or I won't go to the next level or I won't get selected. And actually one of the requirements, even though I might be talking training with them, I might be say, right, go and, go and do some coloring or go, go to the cinema or go, to, go and get a pizza, which is stepping them out of that and giving them a, something else to do. Almost like this is my instruction for you to go and do something else and forget about this sporting world. But you're, you sound like you have a contracting with Aston where 
he he can draw you the other way to say, yeah, hang on, you need to go back and and focus on on sport. Yeah, and again, it's just it's it's that idea of balance, and I actually think it's a performance detriment when everything about your life, your entire hope for validation, rests on a single performance. Like it's just too much. It's unnatural. Um, you lose that perspective, and I think in many ways you lose the freedom um, to go out and perform because you're too scared of not performing or what you're going to to lose. And so I think probably the reason why Aston, you know, is so positive towards positive distractions is because he knows ultimately it's a performance enhancement. And equally, you know, I've had experiences. My career has been almost 12 years now. Um, you know, you will experience injury. And one of the things I always encourage young athletes to do is, you know, right now, yeah, you're healthy. That's great. But right now, write out a list of all the things that you're going to do when you experience a period of injury, when you have this three week period, you know, what can you do? And actually a lot of the best, um, um, my broadcasting career started, um, because I prolapsed a disc and I had six months and I thought, oh, what am I going to do? And I applied to be a, um, BBC had this great program called the BBC kickoff sports reporter. And, and so I did that for eight weeks and I ended up getting a job off the back of it. And so a lot of these positive distractions actually came about because I had a block of time due to injury. I wasn't expecting and just thought, well, I can sit at home and watch Netflix, uh, which is actually sometimes the best thing to do, or um, I can have a bit of an explore and see what else is out there. I love that. As, and I love that as a tactic of, of being able to park it as well. I think oh, I might go and do this, but maybe you think now's not the time. I'll go and park it somewhere and go and revisit that that box and 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 tell tell my future self what to get up to when I'm when it's, it's not the right time wow okay so I mean I, look, I'm really conscious that I, I can ask you uh questions all day but <laughs> but um I've got a couple more about how your what are your goals and in, and hopes and ambitions for Tokyo um and I'd also like to ask you about uh the the role uh, in terms of governance and and, and you're, you're thinking around that. So, so what are your, what are your hopes for Tokyo? Where are you, what's your, where's your head at? Obviously there's a change in time rather than it just being in a few weeks, you've now got, uh, over a year and does that change your goals or does that, um, or do you, do you maintain your goals and, and just refocus about how you're going to do it? Um, I think, well, actually for me, like I said, um, it would be different for everybody. I was actually just coming off of, uh, quite a scary, and potentially career-ending injury. So um, when it was announced, um, I, I was back into full training. I'd had some great testing, and actually, we knew yes, I will be ready for Tokyo. But now, but now I have some buffer time. So in many ways, um, it kind of just gives me a little bit of space. It's no longer just about getting back to full fitness and peak. Now we have time to add a few bells and whistles. So um, that that's quite nice. But um, in terms of my goals. So in Beijing, I won a bronze medal. Uh, in London, I won a silver. And then in Rio, for me, the fairy tale ending was I was going to win a gold. Um, what a nice little sequence, and that would be it. And um, it did not. I, I got a. I got a silver. And that was, um, you know, it, it, it was tough. Um, and the reality was, I jumped really well. I jumped the best that I ever had. Someone just jumped better. And it was frustrating and there was nothing that I could do about it. And, uh, and I, I knew Aston was proud and he was happy, but it was just a really hard thing to, to swallow. And, um, 
I had to just really think, you know, how I felt about this. Was there anything else? Is there anything else I can do to jump farther? And um, I gave myself some time. Um, but honestly, yeah, I just thought, you know what? I haven't, I don't feel like I have jumped that, that incredible jump. I'm not going to say perfect jump because I don't think it exists, but just that jump where I look at it and just think, wow, that felt amazing. And I, I just, I cannot do better than that. Um, I haven't had that moment yet where I think, okay, now I can walk away knowing that I've done everything and experienced everything. So I then recommitted to, to Tokyo. And um, yeah, it's been a pretty uh, tumultuous four years um, only because I just thought, look, um, when you're, you know, I'm at the end of my career now. Um, and, you know, as you'll know from your work, um, to find big gains when you've already got to the point of maximizing your potential, it's incredibly difficult. And so we just tried everything and performances were up and down and up and down, but that's sometimes just what experimentation looks like. Um, but we do feel now like we're at a place where we're pretty set in terms of what we're going to do. And, um, we are just going to, you know, have to say I'm, I'm going for the gold. I would love to finish my career on a gold that equally as Aston has always warned me. Um, it's never, if, if I say that I want to win a gold medal, that is not a goal that's dependent on my performance. It's dependent also on other people's performance. So anyone listening, that's a terrible goal. <laughs> so what I need to do, what I've learned to do is just sort of refocus and set a goal for me that's dependent solely on, on me. So that is what Tokyo is, is going to be about. And this next lead up is just making sure that I will be able to look at myself in the mirror after that final, uh, regardless of the results, and just say, I did everything. Um, I'm satisfied. Um, which is actually one of the toughest goals to set because you have to be so honest with yourself in order to um, to to assess that. Um, I forgot on the other part of the question. <laughs> Um, no, well, I think you've, you've answered it fully in okay. that sense of, of it, it not being an outcome. I, I didn't, I politely hedged my answer about the bronze, the silver and the missing bit. Okay. And, and having spoken to Catherine Granger, who I supported through her early career of four silver medals, and ultimately that could have been her story. Um, and then she ended up getting a, a, a gold medal in the middle there. So it's it's about that feeling of incompleteness based on the outcome as opposed to what you're talking about there is how will it feel what will i have done that no stone unturned a process approach of feeling i'm content with the effort that i've put in to to my endeavors regardless of where i stand uh, at the end of the competition yeah and i think i've realized so Rio, yeah, it, it was it was tough, um, and, and I was I was devastated. I was upset. I mean, obviously, silver is a great result, um, and eventually you you end up be happy with that. But I think what I realized was in the middle of that huge disappointment. You know, I asked myself the question: from 2012 onwards, had I known the end from the beginning, would I have still chosen to take that journey, knowing it was going to end like this? And the answer was honestly yes. Because um, as, as you say, the prize, it never is that gold medal in the end. It's the person you've become on that road. Like that is what you will take with you. I mean, I've got medals. They're in a closet somewhere. I don't, you know, they're not out. They're not that important. Um, you think they're going to be. 
and you think you're going to love them and look at them all day, and and it's just it's just not the way it is. Um, yeah, they're cool for a couple of days, and you take them to schools, and people get really excited about them. But actually, the prize, what matters, is who how how you've changed and and who who you've become. Wow, got goosebumps listening to that, and and that's just so it's so important for people to hear and understand because the eyes on the prize as a phrase is is so intoxicating and it's so catchy, but but ultimately it's not what it gives you. Uh, it, so many people feeling relief after winning a gold medal or, or sitting back in their apartment in the village thinking, right, what next? You've got to be content with what you've already taken from it before the results get declared. Wow. Okay, and, and so... Um, uh, maybe this is too much of a step change, actually, from hearing about your inspirational uh, thoughts about performance to sitting on governing bodies and so on. But but tell me about your motivations to be part of a team that steers uh, your your home body or your your governing body. Um, I think so. It actually started back in in 2017 when I was invited to be part of the. Uh, board of directors for the committee that helped organize the the world championships and um i was asked to do it um i was terrified which immediately made me more interested <laughs> so yeah, you know, seven I did days to bit... get over it <laughs> <laughs> so i did a little bit more um research and um it was actually a great um challenge and learning process for me to um learn how to really form and think through opinions that I was then confident enough in to voice and to stand by and to watch decisions happen and things get changed. I think it's just, um, it's so easy to, um, you know, sit back and criticize and say why what people are doing is silly. I didn't think about this. And it's a totally different thing to now take on responsibility and accountability for those decisions and make them happen. And I wanted to learn what that was like. And I felt like, um, I don't know, it's weird. On the one hand, I just felt like I have nothing to say, anything that I think is not going to be important. And then actually realizing, actually, I have a huge amount of experience. I have a voice um, and I I need to use it. And um, yeah, it's really intimidating walking into a boardroom of people that are far more senior than you. Uh, people that have had far more experience in terms of, you know, accounting and game management and uh, marketing and communication and all those things and to stand up and say what you think and believe in what you said. And that was a great learning experience. And so happy to be able to say truthfully that um, I felt so welcome from the moment that, you know, I stepped into that avenue. Um, I know there are so many conversations going on right now about the roles of female in leadership positions and how we need to have more of those in the sport and how it may not be the most welcoming place. And I'm sure all of those things are true. Um, but equally, what I experienced, for example, was, um, you know, there would be scenarios when I had to weigh in on accounting decisions and I'd be going through the accounts and I had no idea, I'm like, how am I supposed to give an opinion when I have no idea what these things mean? And, um, you know, someone driving um, to meet me in Loughborough to go through and explain everything to ensure I was up to speed because it was that important to them that I was able to participate fully and they wanted to know what I thought. So my experience was hugely positive and I, you know, welcome anybody, you know, male, female, everybody to get involved in government and give it a go. Um, and, and learn about it because our sport will be better 
the more that people um, from every single tier of the sport understand what is going on at the top and understanding the process of how to make a change. Um, obviously, becoming um, uh, vice president um, for the UK Members Council um, at British Athletics was another step up, and, and that has been um, a huge challenge. And I'm learning constantly, uh, but again, I am loving it, and I'm loving having the ability to, to get involved and take responsibility and and really understand the process of, of making things change. It's hard. It is unbelievably hard, but it is an incredible um, thing to learn how to do and to watch people who, who do it well. Mm. And do you have do you have a number of hats that you wear, or do you have do you have a collection of hats that you wear at the same time? Do you sort of say, oh, "I put my athlete hat on," I put my para hat on, or I put my female athlete para hat on, <laughs> uh, <laughs> as well as thinking about the? Because obviously, athletics is in in a in a place where that there are things to be improved. Uh, you're thinking about the the future. Uh, position of the sport where it's going to be at and how it can develop how it can prevent some of the uh the difficulties it's it's encountered recently yes of course and exactly what you say about hats actually i'm not sure i've ever had a vice president who's also been a competing athlete which has its challenges but actually has huge benefits too because i'm fully integrated into so many different uh, networks and can easily draw on different perspectives and engage different people. Um, so that has been been a huge plus. Um, and again, that's part of the reason why um, I took the job. I think, um, you know, I do, I say job, it's a volunteer position, um, as are most things in, in athletics, um, which again, demonstrates um, the commitment and passion people have, but also the need for it to professionalize, for sure. Um, but I think, the skill set that I have is probably, you know, very different and very unique. And um, I'm, I'm excited to see where that can fit in and, and how it can help. Mm, amazing. Can I ask you one more question? Of course you can. What is going to scare you next? So what, what's, what's coming up? What are you parking perhaps beyond your career uh, that's going to make you a little bit excited uh, and scared enough to think, yeah, you know what, I'd give that a go. <laughs> um, it's funny, I kind of have, yeah, so every year I, I, I like to pick at least one thing that I find, you know, just, just super terrifying. Um, and, you know, one year it was doing this film, one year it was MasterChef, um, and in 2019 it was actually uh, going to Nepal with Leprosy Mission and um, hosting a huge um, social media fundraising drive for a hospital, uh, a leprosy hospital that had been hit by the earthquake in, in 2015. Um, I'm, I'm not, I'm not quite sure actually about 2020. Um, it, it looks really different now from, from what I thought that it would look like. Um, taking on the, the vice presidency role um, has kind of ended up being that one. But um, it's not something I plan. I think it just kind of, um, it happens. And the more that you say yes to things or just in little ways in everyday life, um, you know, taking opportunities, whether that's having a conversation with someone new, just, just say yes. And you'd be amazed at what comes your way. So um, I don't yet know for certain, but um, we'll, we'll see. I mean, I'm open. OK. All right. Well, if anyone's listening that uh, they can they know where to find you. Um <laughs> Look, Steph, I've taken so much from this conversation. I'm so thankful for connecting with you today. And um, 
it's such a shame that we're we're separated via the webinet. Um, I know that we're only thirteen minutes away from a <laughs> from uh, in down the road, but you've so much energy and depth of thought. But what what you've experienced, but also the how much benefit that um, that people can can gain from this. Um, I think probably zest is the right word, um, and I know for sure that. To, to coin Aston's phrase, you're going to be a real positive distraction for people as they're focusing on what they're focusing at the moment and uh, and listening to to what you've had to say. So thank you so much. Uh, thank you. This has been brilliant. I really enjoyed it. Now, not surprisingly, Steph is a motivational speaker. And if you're thinking of someone to inspire your next event, when those events now start up again, then take a look at stephreed.com forward slash speaking. You can also follow Steph on Twitter at runjumpstephreed. You can follow us on Twitter at support underscore champs. You can follow me on Twitter at ingham underscore steve. Check out our LinkedIn page at supporting champions. We've also got a Facebook page called performance people. The links are in the show notes. So have a look. 